0: I'm going to share some stats with you. Uh, Stat number one, 50 million Americans feel the effects of panic attacks and anxiety disorders every year. Stat number two, depression is the world's leading cause of disability. Number three, people in the 20th century were three times more likely to experience depression than people of the preceding generation. Number four, 16.2 million American adults suffer from major depressive disorder, which is one major depressive episode per year. Anxiety and depression is a big deal. And you know what's true about all those, each of those four statistics? That was before a worldwide pandemic hit. That's when those stats were from. Since the worldwide pandemic that has shut down so much around the world and disrupted so much of our lives. Some more stats. Mental distress has increased by about 700%. Another one, calls to the National Suicide Hotline have increased by about 600%. Prior to the pandemic, 3% of parents reported experiencing severe distress, 3% of parents. After the pandemic, that 3%, it jumped to 37%. A lot of people feeling stressed anxious, depressed. And if that's you or someone you love, feeling sad, overwhelmed, discouraged, it doesn't necessarily mean you're doing something wrong. In fact, there's one person who can relate pretty well to how you're feeling, Jesus. Jesus can. In the Gospel of Matthew, on Monday Thursday, the Bible gives us some very descriptive words to describe the emotions that were cycling through Jesus. It says this. It says then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I pray, while I go over there and pray. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Sorrowful, troubled, overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. In other words, his emotions were nearly killing him already hours before his crucifixion. And if it would be wrong to feel those things, and of course that would make it a sin. But of course, Jesus never did such a thing. He never sinned. Feeling overwhelmed, feeling sorrowful, it's not an indicator that you're necessarily doing anything wrong, it's just a reminder that we live in the same troubling world that Jesus himself did. A world that has the potential and the ability to have a very powerful effect, even on the God that we believe in. That's the kind of world that we live in. And why did it, why did the world inflict that pain on Jesus? Not by accident. But because he chose it. He was sorrowful and overwhelmed, even to the point of death. Because he wanted to guarantee that whatever it is that's causing you anxiety, it's not going to get the best of you in the end. That very next day, he was going to pay the price that was necessary to guarantee you that you will be part of God's family forever. And the home where you will be set free from all of your anxiety, from all the things that weigh down your heart, from all the things about you, about which you worry so much. He wants you to know that they're not going to get the best of you in the end. It's not wrong to feel anxiety. Jesus knows it's real. And he wants you to know that he's with you through all of it, all the way to the end. Do you know what happens every 1.6 seconds, roughly? So 1.6 seconds, that's not a lot, that's boom, boom, boom. I don't know if that's exactly 1.6 seconds, but it's probably pretty close. So once every 40 seconds, Somebody around the world dies by suicide once every 40 seconds. But there are roughly 25 suicide attempts for every successful suicide, which means that there is a suicide attempt every 1.6 seconds. Just now, 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 and it'll keep going. That's a lot of people in the world every day feeling like there's not a lot of hope, feeling like whatever's going on in their life that's causing them distress can't really change. I have a counselor friend who has said that, really, there are only two types of problems that we have in our lives. There are Play-Doh problems and there are rock problems. And what she meant by that is that, you know, Play-Doh is something that you can, you can mold, you can change. And so there are problems in your life that you have the ability to do something about. You can change it, you can mash it, you can mix it, you can make it look, you can make it look different. And I'm not gonna talk about those types of problems because if you have a Play-Doh problem, then well then just go ahead and change it because you have the ability to. But there are a lot of problems that are rock problems. And of course, if you take a rock, you can't mold it. You can't change it, it is what it is. And there are a lot of those problems. And those are the ones that I'm gonna talk about today, the rocks. And if you're in a rock situation, something that's really hard that you can't change, I want you, to, I want you to think about Joseph in the Bible. Because he was in a lot of those situations. He couldn't change the fact that his brothers hated him. He couldn't change the fact that his brothers sold him. He couldn't change the fact that he had been ripped away from his father. He couldn't change the fact that despite his best efforts, people kept forgetting about him and neglecting him and throwing him in prison. And that bad thing after bad thing after bad thing after bad thing was happening, even though he was doing good, he couldn't change all these bad things. He also didn't see coming at the end, after God had elevated him to the second highest position in all of Egypt, basically the entire world. He couldn't see the day coming when his brothers who sold him would walk in many, many years later. And after his brothers realized who it was that was standing in front of them, the brother that they had hated, the brother that they had sold, they were afraid that Joseph was going to do something bad to them. He's going to take revenge. But instead, Joseph said something really significant. He said this. He said, But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And there's a particular two-word phrase in there that is just absolutely, absolutely key in how we deal with those rock situations. And it's the two-word phrase, but God. He didn't say that, I know you guys didn't mean it. You know, he didn't say that. He said, "What you intended to harm me. He couldn't change that. But God took that very bad thing that he couldn't change and he changed it into something really good. And the God that we believe in has a long track record of doing just that. The Israelites were trapped between the Egyptian army and the Red Sea. But God stopped the army and he opened up the waters so that they could walk right through it. Gideon only had 300 men going up against thousands, but God gave them the victory. Peter and John were in prison, but God miraculously set them free. Time and time again and again, God's people were in a rough situation, but God came through for them, including the day when God was hanging on a cross, dead, and it looked like there was no hope at all, and there was nothing anybody could do to change it. But God, rose again and showed that he truly is more powerful than anything. There is always a but God waiting for God's children that allows us to have hope moving forward that whatever situation is taking it away, it's not gonna get the best of us in the end. But for some of you, maybe you know somebody who lost so much hope that they're one of the 1.6. And maybe they succeeded. And you might wonder, where's hope for them? People who didn't just outright thumb their nose at God, who didn't say, God, I want nothing to do with you, but individuals for whom life was so overwhelming, the hurt was so big, that it made them really weak. And in a moment of extreme weakness, maybe it got the best of them. Where's the hope in that kind of situation? I see some hope in Genesis 21 with Hagar and Ishmael. Hagar and Ishmael, they they lived with Abraham and Sarah. There's a long backstory here, but they made life really difficult with, alongside Abraham and Sarah. They weren't, you know, it's not like it was Hagar's fault or Ishmael's fault. it was Abraham and Sarah, it was just, a, just a big mess, a big old soap opera, but eventually it got to the point where Abraham and Sarah, they said to Hagar and Ishmael, "You have to leave now." And so they did. And this is what happened after they left. It said they went on their way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba, and when the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. and then she went off and sat down about a bowshot away, for she thought, "I cannot watch the boy die." And as she sat there, she began to sob. God heard the boy crying. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what's the matter, Hagar? Don't be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand for I will make him into a great nation. And then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And so she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up. You talk about a hopeless situation, it was one where they were convinced that they were just going to die. And it was so painful, she couldn't even be by her son while that happened. But what was the case in that hopeless situation? God saw them. God saw the little boy. He saw his tears. Just like he has seen yours. Just like he saw the tears of the person that you love. And how did he respond to Hagar and to Ishmael? The same way he promises he will always respond to us and our needs. With a lot of grace. With a lot of mercy. We see that at the cross of Jesus. Where God, without us ever asking, put his son on a cross. And he had mercy on us. And he gave us a love that we do not deserve. So we could rest our hope and a God who will always give us his best, even when life is getting the best of us. I'm going to read a portion of an obituary, an obituary of a 19-year-old young man who experienced a lot of trauma through his entire life and who died by suicide a couple of years ago. Here's the portion of that obituary. It says, he was a beautiful boy who could outrun us all but could not escape the trauma he experienced a young man with a wide, easy smile that masked the pain he carried into every space. He spent much of his time anxious and depressed, angry and exhausted. His mental health diagnosis ranged depending on the doctor and the day. His symptoms and behaviors shifted with age and circumstance, but what did not change was his belief that there was something so fundamentally wrong that he was unworthy of goodness, peace, joy, family, and love. And the word that jumped out at me in that section was the word unworthy. He felt he was unworthy. And that's not an uncommon feeling. We all feel unworthy at different points in our lives. Unworthy of all those same things. Unworthy of the best things we can give one another and unworthy of the best things we can receive from God. It's been that way from the beginning. Adam and Eve felt entirely unworthy when God promised a savior would come and save them from their sins. The apostle Paul felt entirely unworthy when Jesus stopped him on the road to Damascus one day when he was still Saul and said and introduced himself as the Jesus that you've been persecuting Saul. And then Jesus made him into the greatest missionary the world has ever seen. The apostle Peter felt unworthy when Jesus after he had risen from the dead reminded Peter that you denied me three times. But then still entrusted him with the most valuable part of his entire kingdom, his own flock, his own sheep. King David felt very unworthy after his, sin, after his sin with Bathsheba. In fact, he wrote down exactly how he felt in Psalm 32. He said, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped, as in the heat of summer. That's David expressing his guilt. That's David expressing his unworthiness. Those words are also something else. Keeping silent, bones wasting away, groaning all day long. God's hand was heavy on him. strength was sapped. You know who else that describes? It describes Jesus. Hanging on a cross. Knowing all the ways that we are all unworthy of God's greatest love. And yet he chose to give it to us anyway. And because of that, we get to believe what we read in 1 John, chapter three. which says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us That we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. And if that's what we are, do you know what that makes us? (laughs) In Christ, worthy of God's greatest care and greatest attention every day of your life. In Christ, you are worthy. If you don't struggle with anxiety or depression, chances are you know somebody who does. And you might sometimes wonder what's the best thing that you can do for them. In yesterday's video, I read part of an obituary of a young man who had died by suicide. And in another part of the obituary, his family offered some advice on, on what we can do for others who are struggling with many of the same things that young man was. And so among many other things, they, uh, they said this as part of the obituary. First of all, they said there are no easy fixes, but there are places to start. Uh, become informed about whatever it is that's, that's plaguing them. Educate yourself about the types of things that people go through, how hard they are. Share your knowledge with, uh, with other people, because chances are other people are asking the same things. Become a mentor to somebody who's going through something rough, especially children. They often need someone to, uh, to look up to. Offer emotional support to people in difficult situations. Uh, provide respite to people who are who are overwhelmed and not quite knowing what to do. And then here's the key line at the end. After it offers all of this advice, and there are many other things in there, but he said, "And do any and all of these things with no expectations. Understanding you will be climbing uphill for much of an uncertain journey. And those of you who've had to do this, you know." That loving somebody with no expectations of getting anything in return or of them changing or becoming better or improving, understanding that it's going to feel like an uphill journey day after day after day after day and very uncertain about where it's leading, that that can be hard. It's hard to show the world the heart of Jesus. Because that is exactly what he did for us. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus said it this way. He said, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, he had expectations. He expected that the people he loved were going to ignore him, he expected that the people he came to save were going to pound nails in him. He expected that the people he longed to spend eternity with were going to kill him. That's what he expected. And yet one day he climbed up a hill anyway, knowing exactly what would happen. He would die. We would be forgiven. And you would be given the right to walk through life expecting that you will receive the very best that God can ever give. And if he has given nothing less than his entire life to give you heaven, and the people you love heaven, then you can remind the people you love that they have the right to expect that he will be with them too, day by day. And you also, you who know how hard it is to carry your own crosses and to love with no expectation, you can also expect that he will give you all that you need to If somebody is filled with anxiety or depression or hopelessness then that probably often means that they are not filled with joy And so how do you fill how do you fill how do you fill them with joy Or how do you become full of joy when you're full of all those other things Maybe we get some clues from looking through the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians has a nickname. It's called the book of joy. And the reason it's called the book of joy is because the apostle Paul, who wrote the book of Philippians, he's obviously very joyful when he's writing it. I mean, his joy just kind of leaps off the page. Read through the few chapters of Philippians and you'll see that he's just, he seems very, very happy. And it's very interesting that it's called the book of joy and that the apostle Paul seems so full of joy when he's writing it because he was writing it while sitting inside of a prison after he had been tortured, after his life had been threatened, after he'd been pelted with stones, after he had nearly died multiple times, and he was sitting in a prison, not because he did anything wrong, but because he was preaching about Jesus Christ. So you might think that, well, someone in that kind of situation, that (laughs) what do they have to be joyful about? We We get a clue into what brought him so much joy by looking at the words that he used in the book. In the book of Philippians, there are 104 verses. And if you read through those 104 verses, do you know in how many of those 104 verses he mentions Jesus or Christ? You know, some, some form, some name associated with with the Jesus that he believed in? 40. 40 different times, which means that he was mentioning the name Jesus, he was thinking about Jesus once every two and a half sentences. Just imagine what our words would sound like. Imagine what our thoughts would be if every two and a half sentences we brought Jesus into our thoughts, and Jesus and Jesus into our minds, and Jesus and Jesus into our words. But but we look at what Paul did and we we know something about him. We know that he believed that what he had in Christ far outweighed what he had in his life what did he have in his life? Well, not much. (laughs) His life was, his life on earth was probably going to end in a pretty short time and he knew that was coming. But what did he have in Christ? The same thing you do. I'm going to read just some of the passages in the Bible that that tell us what we already have in Christ. It says, you are approved in Christ. You are sanctified in Christ. Grace has been given to you in Christ. It is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. God reconciled the world to himself in Christ, not counting their sins against them. In Christ, you who once were far away have been brought near to God. In Christ, God forgave you. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. You are all children of God through faith in Christ. We are God's workmanship created in Christ to do good. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ. And there's so much more. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of other passages that remind us of who we are and what we have in Christ. And it's why the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, writes this. He says, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The secret to joy, the secret to joy in any situation is remembering Christ, who he is what he already did, and who you already are because of him. You are God's. And if you are God's, then your life is glorious. Hey, what's up, everyone? Pastor Mike here from Time of Grace. Thanks so much for checking out this podcast. Uh, We certainly would love this message to reach more and more people. So if you wouldn't mind rating and reviewing this podcast, it would bring it to more people's eyes and we pray this message into more people's hearts. Thanks for your support and we'll talk to you soon.